This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. First things first, I apologize if the sound quality in this episode is less than optimal. I've been having some issues with my mic. Add to that being lungs deep in a bout with pneumonia, and I'm giving you nothing but dulcet tones and sweet soundscapes right now. I assure you the mic issues are in process of being rectified. The lung issues remain TBD. So I appreciate your patience, dear listener. That out of the way, what is on the examination table for this episode? Well, we are going back to Texas and discussing Toby Hooper's 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you listened to the episode where I talked about Leatherface and Jason, I made a promise, or you could have viewed it as a threat, perhaps, that when going back to talk about this film, we would be focusing on one of my favorite characters in all of horror, Franklin. Being as though I am nothing if not a lady of my word, I'm going to be diving in to the character of Franklin this episode. Before wading into the welcoming waters of Franklin, I need to circle back to that aforementioned episode on Jason and Leatherface to properly set us up. I used the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre to discuss Leatherface in that episode uh, because disability was an actual kind of plot point in that film. But I mentioned that you could apply that reading to the original film, and I kind of encouraged you to do so. I feel like Leatherface's disability is pretty implicit. So certainly being able to go back, apply some of the things that were discussed in that episode makes nothing but perfect sense. Gunnar Hansen, who plays Leatherface here in this original film, intended him to have a disability and visited a school for students with disabilities to study how they walked, talked, to inform his performance. Now, obviously, this isn't uh, an ideal approach, to put it nicely. In fact, it is dehumanizing these students, and by doing so, leans hard in mimicry or mockery, attempt aside, and creates a caricature that furthers some of those horrible stereotypes and tropes I mentioned in that episode. Now, because of how the character of Leatherface is contained in the story, we do kind of uh, have a built-in buffer 
to keep us from getting into some pretty, I think, dangerous territories with with some of that. Now, all of that is set up because it speaks to why I love Franklin oh so very much. I know a lot of folks have problems with this character. Um, you know, whenever I talk about my love of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's often that, you know, yeah, absolutely, it's such an amazing film. It's iconic. Such a landmark for the horror genre. But isn't Franklin the absolute worst? Usually what I do is I pause for a few moments and I wait patiently for that individual that I'm speaking with to correct themselves because I know that they actually mean that Jerry is the worst in this film. And when they don't, I simply just keep it moving. Um, but I've always wondered why, why do people kind of despise Franklin to such a bizarre degree to me? Um, so that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about because the more that I kind of watched this film, there were different things that kind of stood out to me as some answers to that question. So that's really what I want to dive into uh, with this episode. Now, a lot of this episode is going to be talking about accessibility. Franklin is a wheelchair user and accessibility, the way that he's able to access spaces um, with others in his group and the way that it kind of plays into his relationships with those others, I think hits on a lot of interesting themes. When Toby Hooper would be asked about what his film uh, is about, kind of commentary type things that he wanted to make on really uh, important issues of the time, because you know this is a film that came out in the early mid-70s, and so there was obviously a lot of social political um, energy um, and, you know, he would say, well, my film is about meat. And, you know, if we extract the tongue from the cheek there, I think what he's really talking about is how we treat, um, certain people, um, certain groups and certain demographics as meat. So there's a lot to unpack just on that alone. So, that's kind of going to be the framework for the episode. So, all of that wonderful, wonderful setup uh, out of the way, let's get in, as we do, to the plot synopsis. Sally Hardesty, her paraplegic brother Franklin, and their friends Jerry, Kirk, and Pam visit the grave of the Hardesty's grandfather to investigate reports of vandalism and grave robbing. Afterwards, they decide to visit the old Hardesty family homestead. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker who talks about his family who worked at the old slaughterhouse. He borrows Franklin's pocket knife and cuts himself, then takes a single Polaroid picture of Franklin for which he demands money. When they refuse to pay, he burns the photo 
and slashes Franklin's left arm with a straight razor. The group forces him out of the van and drive on. They stop at a gas station to refill their vehicle, but the proprietor tells them that the pumps are empty. They continue toward the homestead, intending to return to the gas station once it has received a fuel delivery. When they arrive, Franklin tells Kirk and Pam about a local swimming hole, and the couple go to find it. They stumble upon a nearby house, and Kirk calls out for gas, entering through the unlocked door, while Pam waits outside. Leatherface, a large mute man, wearing a mask made from human skin, suddenly appears and kills Kirk with a hammer. Pam enters soon after and trips into a room filled with furniture made from human bones. She attempts to flee, but Leatherface catches her and impales her on a meat hook, making her watch as he butchers Kirk with a chainsaw. Jerry heads out to look for Pam and Kirk at sunset. He sees the house and finds Pam still alive inside a freezer, but he can but before he can react, Leatherface kills him. With darkness falling, Sally and Franklin set out to find their friends. As they near the neighboring house and call out, Leatherface lunges from the darkness and kills Franklin with a chainsaw. Sally runs toward the house and finds a desecrated remains of an elderly couple upstairs. She escapes from Leatherface by jumping through a second floor window and she flees the gas sta- and she flees to the gas station. The proprietor calms her with offers of help, but then he ties her up, gags her, and forces her into his truck. He drives to the house, arriving at the same time as a hitchhiker, now revealed as Leatherface's brother. The hitchhiker recognizes Sally and taunts her. The men torment and torment the bound and gagged Sally, while Leatherface, now dressed as a woman, serves dinner. Leatherface and the hitchhiker bring down one of the desecrated bodies from upstairs, that of their grandfather. He is revealed to be alive when he sucks blood from a cut on Sally's finger. They decide that Grandpa, the best killer in the old slaughterhouse, should kill Sally. He tries to hit her with a hammer, but he is too weak. In the ensuing struggle, she breaks free, leaps through a window, and flees to the road. Leatherface and the hitchhiker give chase, but the latter is run over and killed by a passing truck. Leatherface attacks the truck with his chainsaw, and when the driver stops to help, he knocks Leatherface down with a pipe wrench, causing the chainsaw to cut his leg. The driver flees, and Sally escapes in the back of a passing truck, as Leatherface maniacally flails his chainsaw in the air in anger and defeat. So that's our plot synopsis, and what I want to do is really focus in on our Franklin-centric scenes. So our first introduction to the group is Franklin-centric. We have Kirk uh, helping Franklin out of the van using kind of a makeshift ramp so that Franklin can use the restroom off the side of the road. So he wills Franklin out and gets Franklin kind of set up. It's kind of on like a top of a hill. And, you know, Franklin is there to use the restroom by peeing in a tin can because that's what you do. And uh, 
truck passes by and somehow through means that remain a mystery to this day, a gust of wind somehow um, kind of dislodges the wheelchair and Franklin and the chair and tin cup of pee take a tumble down the hill. And you hear Sally kind of scream out from the van after her brother. And you hear um, kind of some commotion. And then Kirk uh, moves down to uh, kind of go after Franklin and help him back up. Now, what this does is really lay some foundation of othering Franklin from his group. Like I mentioned in the intro, Franklin's accessibility issues kind of set him apart from kind of the action a lot of times and sets him apart from his group. And so here is kind of our, our right off the top introduction to this group right after we have that kind of voiceover opening um, and we get uh, kind of the iconic uh, kind of photograph flashlight bulb sound cues and we get those um, images of the uh, kind of remains of corpses all of that stuff we go right into being introduced to this group and, and this is what we get. We get Franklin um, peeing in a tin can off the side of the road falling down a hill and like I said it really does set up that dynamic of him kind of being othered from the group and I think also sets up some relationship dynamics from what we gather here um, although we don't really get much more to base it further is that Kirk is probably the person that is, you know, mainly wheeling Franklin around. It just kind of seems how that setup goes. And Sally and Franklin, brother and sister, she's obviously really concerned when she sees that Franklin has had an accident. And so we're getting already a lot of really wonderful kind of foundational things here that shows kind of Franklin's dynamic within this group. Now, after this, uh, we cut straight to the van. They're back on the road. And this is when they go to the graveyard. And this is a pretty short scene. And we get, um, you know, our kind of intro into the graveyard. Sally goes, finds who she needs to, um, kind of let her in to go look at the grandfather's grave because they want to make sure that nothing has happened to it because of the reports of graves being robbed in that area, which is kind of the whole precipice of this trip. And so we then get voiceover as we get a shot of Sally and kind of the caretaker walking through the graveyard to the grandfather's uh, gravesite. And 
she then gets back to the van and in voiceover again tells Franklin that the uh, grave site is fine. That didn't look like it had been disturbed. And this is only her addressing Franklin. You know, this is their family. And so Franklin was probably really concerned as well, but accessibility, um, you know, probably not an easy little path to have Franklin go through uh, the cemetery as well. So, you know, she kind of has to go check it out and report back, you know, to make him feel a little bit better about the situation. So, you know, we're really getting just the onslaught of Franklin's kind of set aside. And it's important here that Franklin doesn't really seem upset by any of this. Um, you know, the incident of him falling when they stopped to let him use the bathroom, that never comes back up again. And you would think that for a character that is often labeled as being confrontational and annoying and whiny, that that would be something that would come back, but it doesn't. He seems pretty nonplussed and, um... You know, it's just something that has always stood out to me. It's like, well, it would only make sense that he, you know, would be like, hey, remember when you didn't secure my brakes and I completely tumbled down a hill and that was a thing that happened to me. So, I don't know. Just something that stands out to me and also he doesn't really, there's not a sequence of him like, being upset that he can't go through the graveyard with Sally. None of that is really laid out. So, after this, they are back in the van and they are making their way to get gas at the gas station. And we, once we get there, our van is stopped. Sally and Pam kind of jump out and I, I think we're inclined to believe that they are going to the restroom and it kind of puts a weird little mark on the sequence that we had uh at the beginning because you know accessibility being what it is here are two individuals not in wheelchairs that are able to use a public restroom uh have a little bit of privacy where franklin just has to pee off the side of the road in a tin can so that kind of puts a weird little point to that whole opening sequence again. But they're stopped there, told that there's no gas. They have enough gas to probably make it to the homestead, but getting back may be difficult. And they decide to get some barbecue and head back to the house. Now, Franklin stays in the van the whole time, and Kirk and Jerry kind of stay in the van with them, with him as well. Although I do think they get out to get the barbecue. And then we get back on the road and that's when they meet the hitchhiker. So again, not Franklin being like, I want to get out of the van. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like he's kind of just stayed put while everyone else is kind of doing things around him. And that's that. When we get back on the road, no mention of anything. They're eating their barbecue of people and keeping it moving. 
So then we get to the Hardesty family homestead. So again, they're making this trip to check on the gravesite and, you know, makes sense that they would want to stop and take a look at the old family homestead. And probably this is the first time that the others have been able to check it out as well. And so Sally seems kind of excited to show her boyfriend, Jerry, and the friends, the house that, you know, probably her and Franklin visited quite often. So they get out. We see Franklin pushing himself. So we do realize that Franklin has the ability to push himself a little bit, but this is pretty rough terrain here. Um, they're in a rural and kind of wooded area. And so he's kind of struggle pushing himself into the house and everyone kind of beelines upstairs to a section of the house that Franklin can't go. So here's a sequence that I think a lot of people cite when, you know, they're making their argument that he's kind of an annoying and aggravating character. As they all go upstairs, he shouts at them and, you know, blows raspberries because he's like, all right, well, I guess I'm just stuck down here. And this sticks out to me the more I watch it because it's like, why not show them the entire house? Like, why not show them anything on the ground floor right away? Like, that seems weird. I mean, they literally just go straight upstairs. Um, and so Franklin's like, well, fuck y'all. I'm just gonna, I guess, chill. Have fun. But again, after that, it's not mentioned again. Pam and Kirk come downstairs and Franklin points them in the way of kind of this watering hole that's on the property. And, you know, he seems a little put out that he's been kind of left alone. Um, but it's not brought up again. And that's kind of that. Now, obviously, I don't think that Pam, Kirk, Sally, and Jerry are malicious in leaving Franklin behind or not really, I guess, thinking through some of these accessibility issues themselves and how it would relate to Franklin. When they are going upstairs, it's probably not fully hitting them that, oh, well, A, there's absolutely no way that Franklin can get up here with us on his own. And us just kind of leaving him be is probably saying something to him that maybe we're not intending to communicate. So I think that that's all something to factor in here. I don't think there's a maliciousness. And that's why I spent a little bit of time talking about that opening sequence because Kirk is there and helping Franklin get in and out of the van. Uh, Sally screams out after her brother. They obviously have a really close relationship. If you look at just that sequence, there's another one that I'll mention here in the next scene I'm going to talk about. But this is one of the things that really does, I think, make this film really special to me. Is that Franklin is a part of this group. And yeah, 
They leave them behind. They maybe aren't as thoughtful to some of these issues as maybe they could be. But that's when we have to factor in things like, you know, we are in the 70s and the way that accessibility was thought of and handled at that time, obviously, uh, is a lot different than the way that we would think about it now. I'm not hitting on a lot of those aspects because I think it's pretty clear and it's kind of an obvious thing. You know, if someone is a wheelchair user, now public restrooms are almost always accessible. Accessibility, thanks to the ADA, is kind of the law of the land. However, there's still a lot of accessibility issues in ways that people can um, find loopholes in terms of some of that. So it's kind of why I'm not hitting on it as much. When I'm talking about accessibility, I'm talking really about how accessibility impacts Franklin and kind of his dynamics in the group. So I'm just kind of wanting to reiterate that in case it sounds like I'm just like, oh, we get to here and they leave him behind. It's not coming from a place of callousness or maliciousness. It's just coming from a place of not being aware. This reminds me of kind of my experience in high school. In my senior year, I was in a wheelchair following a couple of surgeries for most of that year. And about 90% of the time, my friends were really great um, and would help me when I would need some assistance getting to and from classes. Now, mostly I could kind of push and wheel myself where I needed to be, but there were a couple of places, uh, the way that our school was laid out. I went to a really small school, so spaces were really tight. Hallways were pretty narrow, but we had like these pretty steep ramps, which you're probably thinking ramps. That's good. Well, ramps are good until you have to push yourself up them and they're steep. Um, so I thankfully had a lot of great friends that, you know, if I had to go, uh, to classes that would, uh, require me kind of getting myself up the ramp. I had friends that would be really great in making sure that they could help me get up there. Um, obviously going down the ramp was a whole different story and quite a good deal of fun. Um, but there were also times where, you know, to be cute, a friend would be like, yeah, I'll help you get to class. They would get me up the ramp and then keep pushing me, get me to like another section of the hallway or two. There was a hallway on the other side and would just kind of leave me there um, and tip me upside down in my wheelchair and be like, all right, enjoy your class. And then I would just be kind of stranded there in the hallway and late for class. And while that seems kind of cute and fun and they were having a good laugh, it was aggravating to me and kind of hurtful because it's like, hey, I just want to get to class. So the way that I think Franklin's sister and their group of friends are kind of interacting have flavors of that. It's, you know, we're not just really taking into account how all of our actions and this place that we're in are really impacting this 
other person's ability to be part of our group. Um, but I'll also stress that, you know, particularly in this scene when we get to the Hardesty family homestead, yeah, Franklin's annoyed, but, you know, he still directs Kirk and Pam to the watering hole. You know, he's not, like, completely throwing tantrums and being upset and all of that. And not to say that that wouldn't have been warranted. Um, because it's a situation that until you're there and you're experiencing it, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, you're, the way that you feel is going to be the way that you feel. Um, and so it's something that, like, uh, what I've said before, uh, it's something that with repeated viewings now, it's hard to, like, think about it outside of that lens. Um, and it really does make you, I think, look at Franklin a little bit differently when he does seem slightly upset because you're like, well, yeah, I would totally feel the same way. If my friends were kind of ditching me like that. I wouldn't be pleased and I'd want them to know. Um, so, uh, I think this scene really does kind of highlight that. And, you know, I talk a little bit about that just because this is also that scene where people are like, yeah, he was so weird and annoying and, you know, blowing raspberries at them because they weren't hanging out with him. Well, I, I may do that too if I was in his position. So we have this scene. Um, and then the film progresses. We see um, Kirk and Pam go off to the watering hole, but they stumble across Casa de Leatherface, and they are um, kind of entangled and dispatched there. Then useless Jerry decides that he should probably do something for once in the film, and um, goes to look for them and gets himself killed, thankfully. Um, and then that leaves us with Sally and Franklin back at the homestead. So night has fallen and Sally is clearly concerned about the whereabouts of everyone. They've kind of disappeared. And so she wants to go and set out to find them. And she wants to go by herself. And she asks Franklin to use the flashlight. Knowing that he would be left by himself and without his flashlight. On top of that, uh, he kind of goes back and forth with her. He's like, well, I'll go with you. And I'll shine the flashlight if you push me. And we can go together. And she's like, no, just give me the flashlight. I'm going to go find him. And I'll be right back. And he's a little bit standoffish about it. And finally, um, I think he gets to a point where she sees that maybe he's pushed her uh, to, to a, uh, a pretty stressed out, frustrated, angry place and kind of reels back in and says, Hey, are you upset with me? Wanting, you know, to maybe soothe things a bit and 
you know, she explains, no, I'm not upset with you. And, you know, obviously she's just tired. It's summer in Texas. It's hot. She wants to get home. Wants to get on the road. And so, finally, she relents and takes Franklin um, with her. With him holding the flashlight and lighting their way. This, again, can often be a scene that folks will say, well, why didn't he just give her the flashlight and let her go? It would have been a lot easier. Um, Instead, he had to make it a big deal and not give her the flashlight. But, as I said, he's aware that if she goes off by herself, he's left by himself. And being in a wheelchair... His ability to protect himself if something happens or, you know, find safety, do anything, is far more limited. And, you know, again, she's taking his fucking flashlight. So, I kind of give him a lot of grace here. And that, yeah, you know, a huge rule in horror films is... Don't go off alone. Stay with someone. Stay in your group. And Franklin is smart and doesn't want to be left uh, alone. So I think Sally in that moment probably isn't really recognizing that. She's kind of at her wit's end. She's tired, hot. All of those things, she's kind of at a certain boiling point and just wants to go. Um, you know, I'd say throughout the film, one of the things that I really like, as I mentioned just previously, is the relationship between Sally and Franklin. Uh, they have a really, really great dynamic. And I think it's really clear and believable when she says, no, I'm not just upset with you. Um that's true. I think she does love her brother. I think she's trying to understand where he's coming from, but, you know, she's kind of feeling her feelings. And so, yeah, she's, she's just feeling frustrated and kind of over the whole situation, but, you know, kind of understands that maybe she's taking it a bit out on him as well. And I would also say that this isn't, you know, she isn't framing anything around disability either. She's not saying, well, you know, you could come with me if I didn't have to push you because that's just going to make it more difficult. You know, it's just like, hey, I just want to go and find these folks and we can be on our way. So, you know, she's, it's an instance where she isn't kind of separating him just based on that. Um, so they go off and Leatherface is kind of lying in wait in kind of this wooded area between, uh, the Hardesty family homestead and his home. And Franklin is killed. And this is a really, uh, interesting sequence and I think something to uh, 
think about in terms of overall theme. So you have the back and forth with Sally and Franklin. Franklin saying, I want to go with, I want to go with. Sally saying, just give me the flashlight. She gives in, she takes him, and he quickly dies. Franklin's death is really tragic to me for a couple of different reasons. The first is that, again, he's with his sister. And this is the only death that Sally really sees in person. Um, and it's her brother. And it's a brother that she obviously cares about and is close to. And, you know, that just adds a certain layer of tragedy to the whole th kind of situation. Um, not to mention the fact that she's pushing him in his wheelchair in front of her. And so when Leatherface approaches and kills Franklin, Franklin is really kind of acting like a human shield of sorts between Leatherface and Sally. And that's really, uh, you know, that adds a certain kind of harrowing aspect to his death. Now, one thing to also think about in terms of Franklin's death is that there's also this underpinning um of well if franklin hadn't thrown a fit and wanted to go with sally he may have survived so really this is his fault first off franklin wouldn't have survived or survived long leatherface would have tracked him down and killed him because at that point, he wouldn't have had someone that would have been able to help him move around. So he just kind of would have been there and without any real way to protect himself and get out of danger. So, yeah, maybe he moved himself a little bit closer into Leatherface's web, but I don't think that any of them would have been long for this world in that situation. And, you know, not to say that Sally wouldn't have been able to outrun um, and given chase and kind of kept Leatherface away from Franklin for a bit, but who's to say? Um, but it also goes back to, I think, one of the things that when people say, well, this is a really annoying character... And I've asked myself, well, why do people, like, why is that someone's takeaway? And it's a genuine question. I, maybe there's an element to that that I'm missing. And it all boils down to one thing that is, you know, kind of a built-in topic on this podcast. Ableism. The times that Franklin is quote-unquote annoying um, or standoffish, however you want to define it, is when he's advocating for himself. Is when he's saying, hey, this isn't great. What am I supposed to do here? Um, that's advocating for himself. That's saying, hey, I don't want to be in this position and I really don't have the control to get myself out of it. 
And unfortunately, that rubs people the wrong way, particularly people that may not have a frame of reference to what Franklin may be experiencing. I mean, it's kind of the same idea behind, like, you know, how we call um, certain women bitches because they're taking on a certain authority. They're advocating for themselves. They're standing up for themselves in situations where, you know, instead it's like, oh, well, don't rustle any feathers. Don't, uh, you know, don't say anything. You don't want to um, come off as like a squeaky wheel. Things like that. That's all bullshit. And I think, unfortunately, it's something that's really heavily ingrained and heavily ingrained within aspects of ableism. And so I think that when people say, well, Franklin is worse and he's annoying, unfortunately, I do think that that's where a lot of that is coming from. It's just a character wanting to uh, advocate for himself in some pretty challenging situations. Um, so that's, you know, just kind of my thought on that. Um, you know, the only other thing that I'll say in terms of kind of the remainder of the film and how Franklin kind of factors in, uh, because obviously now we've gotten to our dear friend's departure. Um, one thing that always is an interesting thing, and I haven't really heard people talk about this aspect and, and maybe there has been some conversation around it, but you know, Sally is able to escape. She gets to the um, gas station where she thinks she's found some safety um, after kind of getting to Leatherface's house and escaping there when she realizes that's not where she wants to be either. So um, she's captured. She's taken back to the home and is bound to a chair. So just like Franklin, Sally is now kind of at the whim of the individuals around her. We get the sequence of them, uh, you know, getting her place at the table and she can't move. So it's kind of a striking thing. And it goes back to what I mentioned before with you know, when Toby Hoover would talk about, well, what are the themes or what are you trying to communicate with this film? I don't think that's maybe an accident, you know, when he's talking about how, um, you know, individuals are kind of treated as meat or viewed as less than, um, treated in harsh ways. And we've seen Franklin, um, kind of treated in that way uh, during his scenes. And now we see Sally in a very similar situation. So, you know, just something that is a takeaway uh, for that in terms of, like, the remainder of the film. So, one scene that you probably noticed I skipped over and I said I would come back to is the sequence with the hitchhiker. So, going back to the beginning of the film, 
after our group has made their stop at the cemetery. And before they make their stop to get gas, they see a hitchhiker and they decide to stop. But this isn't after, um, you know, they see the hitchhiker on the road um, a little ways ahead. Uh, I think it's Jerry um, says, oh, well, should we pick him up? And Pam's response is, well, what does he look like? And as they get closer, she's like, oh, he looks strange. Keep going. And no one in the van is really, like, gung-ho, uh, let's stop. But I think it's Sally who says, uh, you know, maybe we should. And so, of course, they do. Um, they pull over and pick him up. And when we see him uh, get into the van, we notice that he has a port wine birthmark. Now, it's a port wine birthmark, which is defined as kind of like that kind of purplish, uh, deep red color birthmark that is often on someone's face. Uh, a really super recent example of this in horror is actually It Chapter 2, um, the scene with the little girl at the ball game, uh, where uh, Pennywise lures her under the bleachers. That is a uh, port wine birthmark. Um, so, is it a disability? By definition, no. Um, but it's something that uh, kind of sets someone aside from an appearance standpoint and in a similar way. And I find it really interesting that Franklin is the character to kind of form a rapport with the hitchhiker from the get-go. They have a conversation and Franklin is asking him questions about himself, about his family. This is where we learn that the hitchhiker's family uh, works at or worked at the old slaughterhouse and they talk about that. They talk about Franklin's family's connection to the slaughterhouse. They talk about how the animals are treated. They talk about meat and they have a rapport. Franklin, you know, says, oh yeah, I've had head cheese. Um, it's really not that bad. And there's a genuine connection. And I do think that, you know, maybe some of that comes from Franklin being like, hey, I know how I've been treated. And, you know, everyone else is just kind of staring and gawking at this guy, not really engaging him. And I don't know anything about him, so I might as well try to be decent. And up until the bit where, you know, the hitchhiker becomes aggressive, attacks Franklin, um, you know, they seem to have a pretty chill vibe. Um, so again, it is really striking that Franklin is the one to form that connection. Now, an interesting trivia or fun fact, if you will, is that the actor who played Franklin had originally auditioned for the role of the hitchhiker and he had auditioned because uh, in the interview that I read, he said, you know, I 
had read the description and, you know, someone who looked a little bit different and that seemed to be me. So he went in and auditioned for Hitchhiker. And I think he ended up reading a few different times. And I think uh, Toby and others were kind of guiding him more towards the Franklin character until obviously he was cast as that. So, um, you know, it does really kind of lay forth a little bit of that kind of connection there as well. And of course, speaking of the casting of Franklin, this is an actor that is not a wheelchair user. I talked about this topic uh, in a previous episode, the importance of uh, actors with disabilities being cast in these roles. Now, yes, we can recognize that the 70s were a different time. And, um, we can do so without kind of dismissing, um, the need, um, of kind of that representation as well. So, you know, of course I have to say that would I have loved to be talking about an actor in, uh, a, a wheelchair user, um, being cast in this role. Sure. Um, and that would probably uh, shape the role in some really interesting and different ways. But I still really like this character. I was really bummed when this character wasn't um, kind of translated a bit better uh, into the remake. Uh, I think it's a huge deficit of that film. Because I think Franklin really does add a lot. I love the dynamics of this group. And Franklin is obviously a key point of that. And so I think it does, you know, kind of knock the remake down a couple of pegs for me. And I would love to see a remake where you do have Franklin. Because I think when people talk about, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, you couldn't have a character like Franklin uh, in a reboot today. Uh, I'm, I'll push up against that. I think the character... I don't see a problem with having this character in a reboot or a remake. Um, but I think, you know, the mechanics around it would certainly be a lot different because of things that I mentioned before. I mean, accessibility being the penultimate um, kind of issue to tackle. Uh, that would look so much different in a film that would be set and made today. I mean, even if you did want to set it in the 70s, I think it would still, you know, just by nature of filmmaking today, I think it would still look a little bit different. And so, and be approached a little bit different. So, you know, sensibilities have changed, science has changed, technology has changed. Um, so I would love to see the the approach to this character um, in a reboot and see what they could do because I think the character is really fascinating. Um, yeah, so do go back. Um, you know, put on uh, this film and, you know, 
think about the character of Leatherface, think about the character of Franklin, perhaps a little bit differently and, you know, drop me a line. Let me know if, hey, yeah, I did go back and watch it. And I'm thinking about Franklin a little bit differently now. Um, I hope, I hope that my rambling has perhaps convinced you that he's not all that bad. So, dear listeners, I do think I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, listening to my my TED Talk slash love letter on the character of Franklin from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I love this character so much in any chance, any way that I get a chance to kind of wax poetic on him. I'm always very excited and I do appreciate you uh, sticking around for that as always this podcast is a proud member of the anatomy of a scream pod squad as I say every episode if you haven't gone and checked out some of my fellow content makers as part of that network do yourself a favor and rectify that situation. Um, Development Hell, uh, Monster Books, uh, Horror is So Queer. There are so many great podcasts and videos um, and just content being pushed out over there. And I cannot say enough great things about it and about the folks over there as well. So, um, please, please, please uh, check that out. And of course, as you're doing all that, if you haven't already, subscribe. Ascribe to the Anatomy of a Scream uh, network here. And like. Um, review. Do all of the podcast business that I so implore you to do each episode. It helps raise the visibility um, so that people can perhaps discover uh, bodies of horror as well as, um, you know, some of those other podcasts that I've mentioned. So, you know, write a review. Maybe as those reviews come in, I'll start sprinkling them in. So get on that. You want to reach out and let me know how much you love Franklin now. Uh, I would absolutely love that and I can be found on Twitter at Nicole and that's Nicole with an H in DC or shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com thank you again for listening and until next time Squad.